You may be seated. What does it mean to be human? Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. But what if knowing the formula of what it means to be human was as easy as listening to the creator of humanity? God's divine sense of humor seems to have followed me along with his goodness and love every day of my life. Um, Part of that humor was in giving me a job my, after my freshman year of college as a framer of houses. Now that's humor if you've ever seen me swing a nail or be around a construction site or do anything that required some sort of knowledge of redoing a home, building a home, anything like that. It, I'm ridiculous, friends. And so I went to Home Depot the night before I started. I was poised for productivity and I I bought a, a bag and I, I put it on um, and I got a brand new hammer, shiny waffle head. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And I got out of my CJ7 Jeep just ready to dominate the world, okay? Knowing also in the back of my mind that I had no business stepping onto this site and no clue what I was doing. And so I got out of my car and I went and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm Ryan and and I'm, I'm here to work. And they said, great. <clears throat> well, you take off those bags, put down that hammer, pick up this broom, because what you're going to be doing today is cleaning up our job site. And what we want you to do is move that three-quarter inch ply- stack of plywood from one side of the house to the other. And then we'll decide if we want you to move it back by the end of the day, right? So this is how my time as a framer went on. I use that term very loosely, that I've seen people frame. That's not what I did. I helped, okay? I helped. But what I noticed was most of what I would sweep up and clean up on the job site on a given day was um, sawdust and nails. And I started to notice that most of the nails, you got a nail when you walked in, will you just grab it for me? Most of the nails that were on the ground were on the ground, not after having been used, but having fallen out of a bag or having gotten discarded for one reason or another, but they were just perfectly good nails that people didn't want to pick up. And I started to notice that the reason that the nail was created, the reason that it was on the job site, the reason that it was there in the first place was so that it could be driven into a piece of wood and attached to something greater than itself. But it was just on the ground, alone, a lonely nail, (laughs) discarded. I started to think that (laughs) our lives are a little bit like that, that we have a design that's over our lives. And we know it on a very central core level of our humanity, that we were designed to be connected to other things, to other people, to movements. And yet so many of us, we live lives disconnected. And so we wrestle with the question, God, what am I here on earth to do? And what am I, what am I to be a part of? And, and so we have this choice. Every single one of us sitting in this room has this choice of what we're going to do with the nail of our life. Are we going to drive the nail of our life into something bigger than ourselves? Or are we going to remain an individual nail? Now, before you answer that question, I need you to know, need you to know that there's some weight that goes along with the question. Because the way that I framed it, you might go, well, well of course I want to be a part of something bigger. And my question back to you is, are you sure? 
Because when we decide that we want to be part of something bigger and we drive the nail of our life into a, a, a house or a family or a body, there's some things that we give up, aren't there? There's some individuality that we lose. There's some freedom that we forfeit. There's some things that we used to do that maybe we can't do anymore. There's a cost in saying, I'm going to take the nail of my life and connect it to the community of faith, connect it to the movement of God, connect it to the family, the church. There's some things we give up, aren't there? In 1877, the French painter Gustave Caillibot, I blew that martine, I'm sorry, but painted a famous, now famous painting called Paris Street, Rainy Day. Now, Paris is um, often referred to as the first modern city. As you read people going to this city for the very first time, what strikes them in its difference, Paris, than any other city that they had gone to before this time was that it was marked by a rugged individualism. Where, where things were readily accessible apart from community that before weren't accessible apart from community. It was a new dawn, a new day in the late 19th century when modernity started to flourish. Individualism took root. Right? So what you could notice about this painting, and you've been staring at it for a few moments now, is it is beautifully mathematic. So the cobblestone street Every stone is equidistant apart. It is a brilliant, most people would look at it and they would say, this is a brilliant piece of art. Uh, a mathematician would look at it and say, well, the people are spaced out fairly perfectly by design. But what you notice about the painting is that each person is sort of doing their own thing. And what Gustav wanted you to recognize, wanted you to know about Paris, is that this was a city now marked by modernity and marked by individuality and individualism, so much so that even the couples aren't talking any longer. Everybody has their own method of keeping the rain off of them, and they're sort of protected from the bubble that we would call the world around us in a significant way. If Gustav Caillibot would have done his painting today. I think you would see a couple in a cafe sitting across from each other, and each of them would have their phone out texting somebody else. See, individualism is the air that we breathe. It's the zeitgeist of our day. And so when we talk about leveraging the nail, the one nail of our life for something bigger than ourselves, we're talking about forfeiting something that is central to our humanity, our individuality, and our freedom. Mark Sayers, the author and pastor, writes it like this. He says, we fear committing worrying that by doing so, we'll reduce our freedom and cut ourselves off from the myriad of choices that constantly entice us. And to that I say, amen. That is our world, is it not? Well, I'm not sure I want to commit because when I commit, I limit myself from the choices that I could have made if I would have just held off a little bit longer. So we're in this series that we're calling This Is Us. 
And we're exploring what it means to be human. And indeed, we said, what it means to be human is that you and I were created as individuals, unique creations by God. There's nobody else on the face of the planet like you. That you were created to create, you were wired to work, you were formed for friendship. Those are all things that are part of the nature and character of God that's placed inside of you. You bear his image. But over the last few weeks, we've started to zoom out saying, we're not just individuals. And we are designed uniquely by God to walk through life with each other. And so we looked at, this is us in relationships and families and marriage. We zoomed out and said, this is us in family uniquely. We zoomed out last week and said, this is us as a church. And as a church, we're not an organization. We're not a business. We're not a corporation, but we're a family. And today, I want to give you the scripture's second metaphor or analogy, picture of what it means to be the church. But here's the question at the center of it all. What are you going to do with the nail of your life? Is it going to just be yours? Or will you drive it in and attach it to something bigger than yourself? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. That's where the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, tells us a little bit more about what it means to be us, what it means to be human. And he's writing to the church about their gathering together. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one, and as many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Here's what Paul's saying. Uh, You just have to look at your body to get a picture of the way that the church was designed to work and designed to function. Because you you have different elements of your body. You have different body parts, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Eyes and ears and mouth and nose. You guys let me down. You let me down. (laughs) Eyes and ears and mouth and nose. What did they teach you in Sunday school? Okay. We have different, different parts, but it's all part of one body. And it's the same truth that overrides and is the umbrella that we gather under as the church. So here's how we'll say it this morning. Life beyond me, a life that's bigger than me, And we all know that if life is sort of like a nail, that it was designed to be attached to something bigger and greater, that life beyond me is shaped by embracing the church as body. See, the pinnacle of my life cannot be me. You were designed, I was designed, we as people were designed to be a part of something that lasts longer than the 80 years that we may get on the face of this earth that is bigger than the accomplishments that we ourselves will achieve, the story that started before that we were born and will go on for all of eternity, that's what you were designed to be a part of. And friends, the story of your life will not be determined by the accomplishments that you make, the resume that you have, or the bank account that you sit on. The story of your life will be determined 
by the things that you connect your life to, by the people that you connect your life to. And what the scriptures will invite us to do is to connect our lives to his body that he calls the church. And see, my invitation this morning is to move beyond viewing church as just an observer, but to step into it as a participant, to move beyond consumption to contribution, and to move beyond criticism to construction, to move beyond mere association to connection. And there is a difference. See, association says, I go to church. Connection says, I'm a part of the church. Association says we have shared interests and shared beliefs. Connection says we have shared lives. Association says I can be critical from the outside. Connection says I'll work towards contribution from the inside. Association says I know. But connection says I love and I'm committed. See, what connects us together as the church? Well, if you look, Paul writes and he says, listen, I know this is a huge step. I know to decide what you're going to do with your one life and what you're going to connect it to. I get it, Paul says. It may seem crazy on the outside to connect your life to some people that are a little bit crazy, that, that, are, that don't have it all together. If you aren't thinking of anybody in your head, when, you, when I tell you there's some crazy people in the church, if nobody comes to mind, you might be who comes to mind for everybody else. <laughs> there, just, just free this morning, okay? So yeah, wh why in the world would we do that? And, and here's how Paul answers that. He says, well, listen, for one thing, we all have the same spirit inside of us. The same Holy Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, in you is the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, in the person sitting next to you. That, that connects us together uniquely. And he says, and we were all baptized into one body. We have had this experience whereby which we met Jesus. He redeemed us from our sin. He showered us with his grace. And we are new creations and new people in him. So before I'm pastor, before I'm a Paulson, before I'm a husband or a father, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of the way of Jesus. And not only that, but the scriptures will say that we together, we have Christ as our head. Notice the, the body imagery that just weaves its way all throughout the scriptures. And he is, Jesus is, the head of the, say it with me, body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, especially in his body, the church. I want to tell you, as an elder board, we take this very seriously. And not only is Christ the head theologically, but our desire, our longing, our ardent prayer is that Christ is the head practically. That he would lead us, that he would guide us, that he would speak to us collectively and show us what he wants us to do. See, we've had to give up just the singular nail of our life and say we're attached to something way, way bigger than just our lives and ourselves. 
And that's the way the body works. I mean, you've, you've seen this when a racer crosses the finish line at the Olympics and wins a gold medal. Somebody sticks a microphone in their face, and here's what you never hear. You never hear, hey, I'd like to thank my legs today because my legs killed it, right? And I'd like to thank my lungs too. They were on point. Now, my hands had a little bit of an off day, but no, you never hear that. Why? Because they view themselves holistically. It's the same way that the church is designed to function. One body, many parts. And listen to the way that the Apostle Paul continues, because if we say, all right, God, I'm willing to, and I'm submitting to, and I'm surrendering the nail of my life to connect it to the story that you're telling and the body that you're building through your church. If we do that, there's some things that start to come alive in us like they never had before. Look at the way that the Apostle Paul continues. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Aren't you glad that your body parts don't have a mutiny against each other? Okay. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. If, if all of us were the same, how monotone and how boring would we be? If all of us had the same gifts, we would be unable to reach the world, to show the love, to care for the body, to do the things that God's called us to do in the way that he's called us to do them. Listen, I love the way that our worship team leads worship. They are, they're, they are wonderful. But I'm really glad that not all of you are worship leaders, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm glad that not all of you are programmed and wired the exact same way. Why? Well, because God's design is not uniformity. In fact, when we start to see the church's body, we move beyond forced uniformity to embrace unity. We're different than each other, friends. We have different skills. We have different giftings. We have different passions. We have different things that we want to see, different hopes and different dreams. And we all need each other. Because being different is actually God's design. And notice, when the Apostle Paul writes that we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, here's what he's not saying. What he's not saying is that people lose their Jewishness or their Greekness when they become a part of the body of Christ. No, they, they keep that so that we can be a more full picture of the manifold glory of our great God. And that truth holds up, not just in the church as it is now, whether it's color of skin, language that we speak, culture that we come from, those differences are beautiful. And here's how we know God appreciates, loves, and designed it that way. They don't disappear in eternity. Look at Revelation chapter 7. 
paints this picture of the throne room of God. And listen to it. John the Apostle writing says, After this I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. These are different people, different cultures, different colors of skin, different languages, in redeemed glory, worshiping God. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that connects people who are different language, different culture, different people, and it connects them for all of eternity. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The same anthem rises up for all of eternity in different languages, in different tongues, from different people. He is the thing that holds them together. And so we can't view church as uniformity. You don't have to look like us, talk like us, think like us in order to be a part. We need your differences. Scott McKnight, pastor and theologian, says the church God wants is one brimming with difference. And see, here's the the beautiful part of that, is that when we start to appreciate the different nature and character and gifting of people in the body, we we actually become way more effective to accomplish the mission that God's given us. We'd be horribly ineffective if we all had the same gifting and were designed in the same way with the same passions. Yes? Yeah. I mean, we would be like the Broncos this season, one-dimensional. They only had a defense, no offense, okay? And it hurt them. It was a really good defense, but it couldn't carry him. Okay? It's true. It's true. So it actually allows us to be effective. The second thing differentiation does is it kills comparison. Because if we expect that people will be different than us, we stop expecting them to be like us. And we create space for them to be uniquely who God has created them to be and a part of the community of faith. See, when I expect that everyone's going to be like me, I measure their effectiveness against me. But when I expect people to be different, I actually create room for embrace. And I create room to receive from people who are unlike me. Can I just, can I press that on you a little bit today? When was the last time you received from somebody who didn't think like you? who had different skills, different passions, different personality, different wiring, where you expected differentiation, invited it, and were better because of it. I think many of us have a sort of middle school holdover where we were only friends with people who had the exact same interests as us, right? Like, if you like football, I like football, we're in together, right? Like, that's the thing that unites us. But as we mature, the intention is that we would surround ourselves with people who aren't exactly like us and will grow from it and be better because of it. Same is true for us as a church. Okay, so here's the way the Apostle Paul continues. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor, can the, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, can we just pause and say time out? And, and let's just, can we be thankful that our eyes aren't saying anything at all? Because that would be a little bit terrifying, right? I mean, we read this passage and go, wow, Paul, that's a little sci-fi of you, right? Okay, 22. On the contrary, <laughs> sorry, stick to the notes, Paulson. On the contrary, <laughs> the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Two words in this passage that grate against our individualism. First word need. I have no need for them. And so Paul pushes back on that and says, well, no, the, the, the body needs every part. The, the foot can't say to the hand, well, because you're not a foot, we don't need you. No, you do. That's the only way you can give high fives. You can't do it with your feet, right? So, but we all need each other. That's his point. That's his point. And so the second word, first word is need. Second word, say it with me, indispensable. We can't do it without you. See, every time we have a new members class, every time we have a, a meet, the, meet the staff reception after one of our services, I'll tell people, if you sink your roots down here at South Fellowship and you call this church home, I'm asking you to figure out what your gifts are and to get involved in the life of the church. Because if you aren't who you are called uniquely to be by God, we will be a shadow of who God has designed us to be by God. If every person doesn't do the part that they are wired and called to play, we will not be the church that God is calling us to be. And when we say with the nail of our life, instead of, I'm going I'm to embrace an individualistic idea of the world, an outlook. When we say I'm attaching it to the life of the body, we move beyond just an acknowledged benefit to an admitted need. Which is a little bit scary, is it not? Because then when people let us down, when people fail us, when people don't live up to the high calling of living in a manner worthy of the calling that they've received by God, it affects us and it sometimes affects us very deeply. And so a lot of us have said, listen, I'm not going to get hurt like that. I'm not driving my nail in like that. I'm not going to trust people like that. And in doing so, we've missed out on the potential and the beauty of what it means to be a part of his church. See, some of the gifts are easy to see, aren't they? I mean, this coming from a guy that has a microphone taped to his face, okay? I, I get that. Some, some gifts are easy to see. Others aren't quite as visible. That's Paul's point. Others aren't quite as visible, but they're just as necessary. On October 2nd, 1996, a plane took off from Lima, Peru, flight 603, and it took off in the evening and as it took off, a storm had set in, and it took off the runway, and it went over the ocean, um, and it started to have trouble. All the dials on the board of this plane just went absolutely crazy. 
And the pilot had no clue where they were. He had no clue where he was until he and his co-pilot decided to try to turn around. And as he turned around, because the dials were so messed up on his dashboard, as he turned around, his wing clipped the Pacific Ocean, and he went in, and they went to the bottom. Seventy people lost their lives that day. A few days later, a group of divers went down, and they started to recover pieces from this plane. And what they found was that the malfunction that happened was actually a really small oversight. They found a a piece of duct tape about this big that was over an air intake valve that messed every dial on the dashboard up. I thought about that because that's a small thing that had a huge impact, yes? You may think that your job at South, quote-unquote job, is small, but I want to I rebuke that lie this morning and call it what it is. It's a lie. So you may think that your role, the role that God's called you to play here, is insignificant. I want to tell you that no role is insignificant. Every role is needed, and every role is indispensable. And if you don't do it, we will never be the church that God has called us to be together. So the small role in stopping gossip from spreading, it may seem small, it changes the life of a church body. The couples that say, I'm willing to mentor couples that are on the brink of divorce and we'll sit across the table from them and say, we've been there too and God's seen us through, may seem small, it may seem insignificant at the time, it shapes the life of a church body. The text that you send, the email that you send, the phone call that you make, the visit of just dropping by that you do, the time that you give to encourage somebody who's in need or to connect somebody who feels disconnected may seem small. It may seem like a little tiny piece of duct tape, but I can tell you, it changes everything. The person who invites people to come with them, who's invited every single one of their neighbors and their family and their friends, you are indispensable for us. The person that holds the baby, who spits up on them in the nursery, rocks them and whispers in their ear that Jesus loves them, you are indispensable. The people who gather every Wednesday night and pray Holding up this church, our Watchman Prayer Ministry, the unseen backbone of South, you are indispensable. The people that help write daily devotions every single Wednesday, it may seem small. You are indispensable for the life and the body of this church. People may never see you, but they will know if you don't do what God's called you to do. So what's What's your part? Every part is needed. What's your part? And I want to tell you, we can't do what God's called us to do or become what God's calling us to become without you. Paul's using this imagery all throughout of of feet, of eyes, of smell. And they're all metaphors for the spiritual gifts that we've been given. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a gift. You have something to contribute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, just a little bit further up in this passage, he says, For to each has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. That's a, that's a spiritual gift. For the, say it with me, church, common good. 
for the building up of the body. 1 Peter chapter 4 says it like this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The reason you're given a gift is to use it to build up the body of Christ and to make it different for God's kingdom around the world. And so that's, that's a joy to do, it really is, but it's also a service that we offer and perform, an offering back to God. And when we see that our lives are connected, that we move beyond association to actual connection with one another, we move beyond mutual enjoyment, as in this is fun to gather and this serves my needs, to shared mission. We are heading somewhere. We are doing something together that we could never do alone. And here's the thing with gifts and service is when you use, if you, you use your gifts often, here's what you know. It is an absolute joy, but it's also a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. It's a giving of time, energy, and focus that the rest of the body might be encouraged and might be built up. That's number one. It's birth from a place of love. When you use your gifts in a way that God designed you to use them, you know it's coming from a place of, yes, it costs me, but I love these people and I want to see them grow in Christ. It's birthed in love. And it's the way that we connect our life to God's vision. I was thinking about just, just a Sunday morning and, and what it takes to do a service on a Sunday morning. And I just went through and I tried to think through every single thing that needs to be done in order for us to gather here together on a Sunday morning. So this week... There were people who came into the church office and helped print and stuff the bulletins. Somebody perforated that little tear-off that you tear off every Sunday and drop information in the offering. Somebody hand-perforated that during the week. Her name is Liz Cooley. She comes in faithfully every single Thursday and perforates our bulletin to the glory of God. She stuffs it also. Someone comes in and cleans the fridge, cleans the sink, cleans the kitchens every single week. Thank you, B. Someone gets all the music slides ready and edits out Aaron and my mistakes every single week. Praise Jesus. Eric Schmidt, Carolyn Schmidt, James Hart, Sharon Motzner, every single week faithfully make sure that the lights are on, that the slides are up, that the music sounds decent, and that God is worshiped and praised in the light, not in the dark. I could not do, we could not do what we do without them. They're amazing, and we only notice them when things go wrong, right? I mean, that's the nature of lighting. You don't notice it when it's on. You only notice it when it's not, and it should be. They are amazing. There were parking lot attendants that meeted you or greeted you in the parking lot, people who held the door and welcomed you. There was warm-ish coffee and a decent donut waiting for you to the glory of God. There were people who handed out bulletins, gave you a nail today, people at the welcome desk ready to answer any questions that you have. 
There were people working at the desk that helped you check your kids in when they were heading back to the kids' ministry. There were people in classrooms rocking and burping babies. There were people sitting in circles with kids telling them about Jesus, holding them on their lap and telling them that there is a good God that loves them and is for them. Right now, there are people leading small groups of high schoolers and middle schoolers, teaching them what it looks like to walk with Jesus. There's a team of security people that help keep us safe, especially our kids, because that's really important to us. There are people who teach classes about the scriptures, about the creeds, about leadership, because they want to help you and us grow in Christ. There were people who Thursday were here at 7 o'clock and didn't leave till 9.30, worshiping and practicing so that they could lead us collectively to the throne of God, and then they listened to music and practiced throughout the week so that they could do it well and lead you into his presence. There are people clicking through slides. There are people running sound. There are people keeping the lights on. There are people who are videoing the sermons so that you can see them online, share them with a friend, or catch up if you miss a week. There are people who backed, parked in the back parking lot because you wanted there to be a space up front for someone who is a guest that was coming in. There are people who will help clean up afterwards. You know those little communion glasses that we use and you stick in the chair in front of you? Those magically don't disappear. Somebody actually comes through and cleans them up and throws them away. 60 of people who call South Fellowship Church home serve in some way, shape, or form. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I didn't design it this way, but we just happened to be having a volunteer appreciation. Thank you tonight. And, And I just want to tell you, it's in our heart to say that. It's in our heart to say thank you because we recognize the unique and special thing that God is doing in our midst and it wouldn't be possible without you. And as we link arms and hearts together for the sake of the kingdom, it is a beautiful thing to see the way that God works through all of us. I was reminded standing in a circle of people praying this morning, people who work in the sound and people who help lead us in worship, that I was incapable of doing any of their jobs that they had this morning. And I love that. I love that. If you're looking for a way to serve, Family Promise is a great way. Jump in. And we'll, we'll land the non-duct tape plane here. That there may be, so Paul's continuing, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. Notice that the the way we combat division is through care. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So here's the invitation. When you drive the nail of your life, into Jesus' body, the church, and say, I'm committed, I'm moving beyond just association to connection. We move beyond just an insignificant acknowledgement of people to an intentional care for them. And Paul says, hey, that looks like mourning with people when they're mourning. So here's what that means, you guys. If you're in mourning, you need to raise your hand and you need to let people know they can't enter in if they don't know. And that we rejoice with people who rejoice. And that takes us saying, God, we want to see the people around us flourish. 
We, we want to see them grow. We want them blessed. And when your hand of blessing is on them, our hand of rejoicing will be on their shoulder as well. We move beyond just acknowledgement to care, to care. And friends, when you and I, when we start to embrace the, the reality that church is we and not me. We drive our nail into God's design, what he's created us for. We say, I want to serve, I want to care, I want to grow, I want to walk with people, I want people to know me and I want to be known. When we do that, we step into the joy that he designed us to walk in. Part of rejoicing with those who rejoice involves, at times, celebrating the next step that they go into in life, the next season that God brings about. And we're going to close our service by praying for Josh and Jen Billings as God has opened this door for them. You guys can come on up. Open this door for them to move to New York where Josh will be the senior pastor of a church. And Josh has invested his life well, and he drove his nail in, and when you back a nail out, that's painful, and that hurts. But we're here together to say to Josh and Jen, we want to celebrate with you guys what God's doing in your life, and we want to rejoice with you. If, um, if any of the elders are present, I would invite them to come up as we lay hands on Josh and Jen and pray for them. But Josh, you've served really well here. And we are grateful for all that you've done. And Jen, thank you for the part that you've played in the body as well. And we're going to mourn and rejoice. We're going to say, God, uh, we don't always understand the way that you move and the timing and the way that you work, but we're going to rejoice at what you're doing in the life of the Billings family. So we want to pray for you guys today and rejoice with you. Would you stand with me as we close our service, remembering that we're a body together and praying for our friends. Jesus, I thank you for bringing the Billings family to us and for the role that Josh played as our executive pastor and the role that he played really well. And Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for Jen. We thank you for Angie. We thank you for Zach the way that they have invested their life here at South Fellowship. We are grateful. And Father, we rejoice with them as you open this door for the next season of your calling on their life, and we do believe it's your calling. And so, Father, we send them with your blessing. We send them and asking, God, would you move and work in beautiful, miraculous ways for the glory of your name through Josh as he pastors, through Jen and Angie and Zach as they become a family in upstate New York. Lord, would your blessing be all over them as it has been here. So we lift them up to you. We thank you for them. And we send them in the name of Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As you, um, this is Josh's last Sunday with us, and so as you have the chance to come and say thank you to him after the service, I would encourage you to do that. He'll be 